Who is worthy of worship? Who deserves your falling down before him? Who deserves your songs? Who deserves your obedience? In chapter 19 of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John hears what sounds like the voice of a great multitude. And they're crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then he sees the 24 elders and the four living creatures around God's throne, falling down and worshiping him, crying out, Amen, hallelujah. And then a voice comes from the throne itself, echoing our sermon text. Praise our God, all you, his servants, you who fear him. And then he hears what again sounds like a great multitude, even like many waters, even like peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory. And then, shortly thereafter, John, being overwhelmed by all that he has seen and heard, falls down at the feet of the angel who has been leading him around. And he worships the angel. And the angel replies, You must not do that! I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God! Who is worthy of worship? Not the Apostle John, not any human, not mighty angels, not those who surround God's throne and are ever crying out before him. Only God is worthy of worship. Only the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is worthy of worship. Furthermore, not only is God the only one who is worthy of worship, we must worship him. God created us in his image to show what he is like. And when we rejoice and exult and give him the glory, we are declaring and we are displaying there is none like God. God. There is none like Him. He alone is worthy of worship. So, in our, in our journey through the book of Psalms, we have completed the Songs of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134. This Psalm, this morning, 135, calls on God's people to praise Him echoing lines from Psalms 133 and 134. In verses 1 to 14 of this psalm, 
The psalmist tells us why we should praise God. And then in 15 to 18, why we should not worship anything else. And then the closing verses conclude, bless the Lord, praise the Lord. So their book ends, it begins, praise the Lord, it ends, praise the Lord. And so as we pray, may God's spirit use these God-breathed words to deepen our worship of the one true God and to keep us from worshiping anything or anyone else. So our outline is from those two major sections of the psalm. Very simple. Why worship God and why not worship idols? So why worship God? The psalmist gives us four reasons for worshiping God in verses 1 to 14. He particularly elaborates on the fourth of those reasons, and so that's where we will focus our time also. But look at verses 1 to 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. So this is the first reason we are to praise God. Why worship God? Because we are his. We are his servants. We are his priests standing in the courts of the house of our God. This is repeating the call from Psalm 134. It speaks very similarly. So we are his by right of creation. He made us. And we are his by right of redemption. He purchased us. And as Jacob pointed out last Sunday, through Jesus, God brings us into his intimate family. Remember in what we looked at last week, Jesus looks at those around him and says, Who is my mother and sister and brothers? He who does the will of God is my mother and sister and brothers in my intimate family. So you see, God not only saves us from judgment, he not only rescues us from the punishment we deserve, he saves us to something. He saves us from condemnation, from hell, but he does much more than that. He saves us to that intimate relationship with him. He saves us so that we belong to him. He saves us so that we delight in him. He saves us to become his precious possession. So the first reason for worshiping God is because of who you are. Created by him, created for him, redeemed by him, redeemed for him. Worship God because of who you are. Verse 3 gives us the second reason. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. 
So the second reason to worship God is that he is good. His name, his character is pleasant. Now imagine if we had been purchased by an evil king, an all-powerful evil being. We were there, thus slaves of, of a terrible master. We might be forced by him, being so powerful, to fall down before him, right? And, and go through the external motions of worship, just as people will fall down before a dictator, a despot, and tell him how great he is and how marvelous he is, all the while hating him. This master, this evil king, might even force us to sing songs for him, as the dictators of North Korea have done over these last decades with little school children singing songs that praise the greatness of their oppressors. But God is not like that. God does not force those that he is taking advantage of to praise him. Rather, he is good. His fundamental character, his name is pleasant. He's the God displayed so clearly in that passage we read from John chapter 13. God in the flesh, Jesus, he knows that he deserves all worship, right? It says there, knowing he came from God and that he is going to God, he knows he is the one that these disciples must bow before and worship, and they should worship no one else. Knowing all that, having loved his own in choosing them, in teaching them, in reprimanding them, in leading them these last three years. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And he displays that then takes out off his outer garment, wraps himself with a towel like a servant, and then goes to perform the most menial of tasks, washing his disciples' feet. The ones who should be worshiping him, washing their feet. That's the character of our God. That is his goodness. His kindness. Jesus is displaying exactly every part of God's being that can be communicated in human form. This is the goodness of our God on display in Jesus. So when we suffer... When we struggle, 
When God doesn't seem to answer our prayers, when we're tempted to think that God is not good, we must hold on to this truth. Remember Jesus, that night in which he was betrayed, washing his disciples' feet. God is good. His name is Pleasant. He is beyond our understanding, and so we cannot comprehend often how he is displaying his goodness, but he tells us, he assures us, you are good and you do good, as we read from Psalm 119 a few months ago. He is always good, always righteous. So first reason to praise him, praise him for who we are, created by him, redeemed by him, redeemed to be his family, his children. Second reason, praise him for he is good. He is good and he does good. He is always good in every act. Third reason, verse 4, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself Israel as his own possession. So the third reason we are to worship God is that God has chosen us. If you are in Christ, you are in Christ because God chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. And then he called you at a particular moment in time and brought you to saving faith so that you repented of your sins and turned in faith, in trust to Jesus. But notice what he says here. He could have just said, for the Lord has chosen Israel for his own possession. That would have been a true statement. But instead he says, the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his own possession. Why does he do that? Israel is the name that God gave to Jacob, right? God renamed Jacob Israel. And so both names can refer to the people of God. But think of who Jacob was. By using the name Jacob, the psalmist is emphasizing there is nothing attractive in us that led God to choose us. Because Jacob is a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He lies to his father. He takes advantage of his brother's hunger. And yet, God chose Jacob. And not only did he choose Jacob to redeem him, to be part of his intimate family, he chose Jacob as the one through whom he would redeem humanity, the ancestor of Jesus. God chose this scheming man as his own. Just so with us. 
And just so with Jesus' disciples, right? Again, Jacob has recently preached on Jesus choosing these 12 to be with him, to be apostles that he will then send out. And who are these 12 people? Well, as we've seen already in the book of Mark, and we'll see a lot more in future chapters in the book of Mark, these disciples are blind, they're thick-headed, they're self-centered. They want to exalt themselves. They don't understand what Jesus is saying to them. These are the ones that Jesus chose. He did not choose them because, okay, these are the 12 best men in Israel today who can be most effective in founding this church. No. He chose them because he chose them. He loved them because he loved them. And then he empowers, equips, transforms them, works through those very sins that they display to mold them and make them into the men who will found his church. It is all his doing. So if you are in Christ Jesus, God chose you not because you have great skill or ability, not because you have something to offer him. He chose you in spite of who you are, just as he chose Jacob in spite of who he was, just as he chose Peter and James and John and Andrew in spite of who they were. He chose you to be his. He chose you to work in you, to perfect you ultimately, and to become his own precious possession. That's why God chose you. He loves you because he loves you. So praise him. So praise him for who because you are his, because of who you are. Praise him because he is good. Praise him because he chose you. Fourth reason, which we'll elaborate on some more. Verses 5 to 12. Praise him because he is great. The overall statement is in verse 5. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all God's. Now, just a little footnote here. When he says he's above all gods, it doesn't mean that there are other gods, right? He's saying, if you think that there's any other god, it would be way, 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 way less powerful than the one true god. Okay? He's not saying there are other gods. Theoretically, if there were any other gods, he would be way above them. Verse 6 then clarifies in a startling way what it means to be as great as God. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all deeps. Who else can say that? Levi Gatewood. Look at me, Levi. 
Levi, can you say, whatever I want to do, I do? <laughs> Is that a true statement? <laughs> if, if, I, mean, I, John, and Bria can tell us, if Levi ran the world, right, and whatever pleased Levi, he would do, everything would happen according to his plan, what do you think would happen to the world? What would happen to Levi's health? Probably not good things, right? Not good things. The meals might be a little different than they are now. Bedtime might not exist. <laughs> Thank God whatever Levi wants doesn't happen. Right? But just as surely, thank God, whatever Cody wants doesn't happen. Just as surely, whatever Sergio wants doesn't happen. Because if I ran the world, no telling what would happen. <laughs> Something not good. Whatever God pleases, he does. That is amazing power. Overwhelming greatness. And he goes on to say, in heaven, okay, we kind of expect that, right? God is in the heaven. Everything in heaven happens according to what God wants. On earth, ooh, that's a little stronger statement, at least in our perception. And then he says, in the seas and all deeps, which seems a little weird to our ears. The idea is that, you know, put yourself in the status of people 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, somewhere in that range is when this psalm was written. The seas were terrifying. There are certain times of the year no one would go into the Mediterranean because it would be so easy to get caught up in a storm and die. The trade was limited to a certain number of months when it was still dangerous, but not nearly as dangerous as at other times of the year. And so the sea was seen as this uncontrollable force. And so it became the picture of unruly opposition to a controlling, ordering power. And so when the psalmist says, whatever the, ple whatever the Lord pleases, he does, in the seas and all deeps, he's saying, even in the realm of God's most powerful adversaries, God is in control. No one can stop him. No force can successfully array itself against him. He does what he wants, and he cannot be stopped. And so verses 7 and 12 then elaborate on this statement. God is so great. Whatever he does, he pleases. Now he gives us three examples of what God has pleased to do. And how he then carries that out. 
So in verse 7, he superintends the visible heavens, what we see when we look up. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. So whatever we see in weather, whatever we see when we look up, God is in control of that. He organizes all that as he pleases. And then verses 8 to 10, he overwhelms the most powerful human forces. So Egypt was the most powerful nation on earth at the time of the Exodus. So that becomes an example. And then the kingdoms of the promised land become an example. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and against his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sion, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan. And so God does all of that for the purpose of displaying who he is. Remember what God says to Pharaoh through Moses. At the time of the, I believe it's the fourth plague, maybe the sixth plague, seventh, actually it's the seventh plague. He says to Pharaoh, for this reason I raised you up. God tells Pharaoh, you're not king because you're a god. You're not king because of your ancestors. You're king because I put you there. For this reason, I raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you my glory. And so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Exodus chapter 9. God overwhelms the most powerful human forces, and he then brings his people into that land. Okay, and that is then the third point, the third elaboration on the greatness of, his, of God's power. Verse 12, he gave their land, the land of these mighty kings, as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. So whatever God pleases, he does. Nothing can stop him. He is determined to create from those he chooses a perfected people for himself. And he will give his perfected people an inheritance. And ultimately that inheritance is himself, is his kingdom, is one another. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, New Jerusalem. As the book of Hebrews says, the spirits of the we have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven who have now been made perfect. That's our inheritance. So these four reasons that we should praise God because of who we are. Because of who he is, because of his goodness, 
because he chose us because of his power and might. So the psalmist in verses 13 and 14 summarizes all these reasons to praise God. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Again, name, whenever you see the word name, whenever, almost every time you see the word name in Old Testament, think character. Your character, O God, there's no word endures in the Hebrew. It says, your name, O Lord, forever. It doesn't change. It's the same. Again, the book of Hebrews tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is always good. Your name, O Lord, forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. I think that's better translated generations as the NIV renders it. So between the first and the second half of the verses, verse, he's saying, your character doesn't change, and your people remember you, your remembrance, your renown, one generation, another generation, another generation, another generation. This is who you are, it doesn't change, and this is your fame, your renown, passed down by your people from generation to generation. Verse 14, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The Lord will vindicate, he will judge, he will rule. I think the idea is he will rule in favor of his people. He will judge those who harm his people. He exercises his power, his authority for the glory of his name and the good of his people. That's who our God is. And so praise him. We must praise him. Well then, second heading, why not worship idols? Why praise God? We've seen that. Why not worship idols? Verses 15 to 18 are almost identical to parts of Psalm 115, verses 4 to 8. I was kind of astounded to see how slowly we've made our way through the book of Psalms. It was September 2021 that I preached on Psalm 115. And that, that sermon focused much more on idolatry. What are the idols that we have in front of us that we're tempted to worship? And so you're welcome to go back and listen to that. Here's just a note on idolatry. What is an idol? An idol, as we've said several times over the years, is anything you rely on instead of God. Anything you rely on instead of God for satisfaction, for security, for accomplishment, or honor. Any God substitute could be a person, could be a power, could be an object, could be a characteristic, could be a spirit. Anything that you rely on instead of God for satisfaction, security, accomplishment, and honor. Obviously, an idol can be the false god of another religion, but of greater temptation to us, most of us, are other forms of idolatry. Could be a specific person, a parent, 
spouse, could be an imagined person, a potential spouse, a potential child. An idol could be a job, a role. An idol could be the opinion of other people. An idol can be a, a bank account or a house or a car. Your idol could be your health or your physical fitness. An idol can be your appearance, how you look. But the idols have no power. Almost. Let's see what power they do have. He starts by saying what they don't have, verses 15 to 17. The idol of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Humans make them. So how can they be almighty? They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouth. They have the appearance of ability, the appearance, the appearance of a personal nature, but they have none of that. They are, are impotent. People want to worship them. But they themselves have no power, except, verse 18, what's the power of the idol? Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Do you see their power? God made mankind in his image. And idols have the ability to do that. Catch that? Their only power is to make their worshipers like themselves and thus to take away their lives. Their only power is negative. Instead of getting satisfaction, accomplishment, honor, purpose, Through an idol, we lose life. We eventually lose the image of God in us. We lose our humanity if we continue in the worship of idols. Think of it this way. Remember what the fruit of the Spirit is according to Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. An idol has none of those. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. Imagine yourself without love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Without all that, you've lost your humanity. You've lost the image of God in you. That's what worshiping an idol does. So we go to idols in order to get something. But instead of getting, 
We lose, we give up. And what we end up losing eventually is our very humanity, the image of God that he put in us. So then the concluding verses, verses 19 to 21, O house of Israel, bless the Lord. That's all of God's people. O house of Aaron, that's the priests, which in the new covenant is all of us. They're all priests before God. Bless the Lord, O house of Levi. Those are the ones that he referred to at the beginning, you who stand in the temple, who stand in the house of our God. O house of Levi, you servants, bless the Lord, you who fear the Lord. I'm test that sounds like a, a generic term, but most likely the psalmist is thinking of those from other nations who had become God-fearers and thus had aligned themselves and could go into the court of the Gentiles in the temple. Okay, so think of this as other nations. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, all of God's people. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. You see, as we worship God, we fulfill our purpose. As we said, God made us worship God because of who you are. To worship God is to do what only makes sense. He's the only being worthy of worship. Let me read you a paragraph from John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, which uses that line. He's the only being worthy of worship. I'll throw in a little commentary along the way. God is utterly unique. Now, that shouldn't be surprising, right? This is what Jacob was saying in his introduction, right? God is utterly unique. He's the only being in the universe worthy of worship. Therefore, when God exalts himself, he is directing people to true and lasting joy. But when we exalt ourselves, my commentary, or when we act as if anything else is worthy of worship, we are distracting people from what will bring true and lasting joy. So for us to be loving, we must exalt God. And for God to be loving, he must exalt God. Love is helping people toward the greatest beauty and the highest value and the deepest satisfaction and the most lasting joy Love is helping people toward God. We do this by pointing to the greatness of God, and God does this by pointing to the greatness of God. God made us to worship. It's only logical to worship Him. And so may we worship him. That's the theme of this service. Father God, nothing compares with your power. Nothing compares with your goodness. Nothing compares with your love for your people. You are going to worship something. I am going to worship something. Either the one true God or 
some false god or worship humanity or worship self or worship my own fallen reason or worship my emotions. I'm going to worship something. And to worship anything other than the one true God, that is to worship anything other than the only one who is worthy of worship, is to take steps to destroy myself. Is to take steps to take away everything good in me. And so may God be gracious to us and shine his face upon us. And praise God for that statement we read from Jesus. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And whatever he pleases, he does. It's God's pleasure to give you himself, to give you his perfected people, to invite you into his presence. So cease from worshiping idols. Worship Father, Son, Spirit. That's what we were made to do. That is what is right, and that is the path to joy. And so may God be pleased to bring us all into that family. And may we worship him in spirit and in truth today and for all eternity. Let's pray together. Please take a moment to pray silently in response to what you've heard. <clears throat> oh, Father God, how we praise your name, how we worship you. You alone are God. Who else commands all the hosts of heaven? Who else could make every king bow down? Who else can whisper and darkness trembles? Only a holy God. What other beauty demands such praises? Only you demands such praises. And that's to our joy. So, Father, we praise you, the one, holy, true God. Accept our worship now as we sing our closing song. In Jesus' name, amen.